Welcome to Kana Stories, a program by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Malak Spanable Jubilee Indians and associate of Dendros Group. We want to uh, say congratulations to our co-host Luz, who officially retired last week and is now in Spain for the next few weeks. So you won't be hearing her voice for a little while. <laughs> no, she's, uh, but we're, she's having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but we're very happy for her and we hope she's having fun in Spain and can't wait um, to hear all about it. But we do have a special guest joining us today. And so I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ruth Richardson. Is it Ruth Richardson now, or is it still Representative Ruth, Ruth Richardson? I know that you were resigning, so I just wanted to make sure that we were addressing you correctly, because you've been on our show uh, previously. So what yes. do we call you now? You call me Ruth. <laughs> you call me Ruth. Uh, <laughs> Ruth, is, Ruth is perfect. So um, I actually joined uh, as the CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States in October of 2022. And so completed uh, a session uh, serving both as CEO and also um, serving within the legislature as well. And I will add that while doing both of those things, was able to finally get paid family and medical leave uh, <laughs> passed and across <laughs> the finish line after a 10-year fight um, in yep. order to get that done and also established the nation's first office for missing uh, Black women um, and, and girls. So got some good stuff done um, and now uh, have uh, taken a step back from the legislature, which was for a season. I mean, you serve for a season, we try to do the best work that we can for as long as we're in those spaces. And now I'm all in on um, just fights around reproductive health. Well, congratulations, because, because mm -hmm. um, since this is your third time with us, and each time we've talked about, um, I think, uh, legislation that's had a positive impact on our communities. So you've done a lot in the time that you were there. And I think you're going to be sorely missed. We are in the midst of our legislative wrap up. And two of the things that kind of came across our desks, as you may say, um, are two uh, things that passed this year that my, for me, I was really excited about um, the Protect Reproductive Options Act and the Trans Refuge and Reproductive Freedom Defense Act. Can you tell us a little bit about what these mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the the PRO Act, as we call it, is all about protecting uh, reproductive uh, freedom. And what it really codified is the full range of reproductive health care. So ensuring that folks would have a right not only to access birth control uh, and contraception, but to um, have access to abortion care and to also carry a pregnancy to term, if that is their choice um, as, as well. And also ensuring that folks would um, have a right to fertility treatments. So as we think about things like, um, you know, wanting to have uh, support for family planning, or if you are thinking about, uh, you know, 
maybe having a vasectomy or something of that nature, just ensuring that people have the right to make the decisions that are best for them and are best for their families in consultation with their doctors. That's great. Yeah, that's the the Protect Reproductive Options Act, also known as the PRO Act. I know this was one of the top priorities for the governor this session. Um, and it does codify a couple of things you mentioned, reproductive health care, contraception, sterilization, preconception care, maternity care, abortion care, family planning, fertility services, counseling regarding reproductive health. Um, I'm curious, does that... Um, include any sort of like prenatal care for um, women who are expecting? Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about this, right, it's the right for people to decide, hey, they want to carry a pregnancy to term. We want to ensure that they have access to the supports that they need in order to do that. And the unfortunate sort of reality of the, the history of our, our nation is that uh, people's reproduction, uh, particularly uh, uh, Black and Brown people's reproduction, have uh, been controlled. Uh, part of it was related to economics, as we think about chattel slavery and the whole ideology of forced births, which really uh, took root after the formal slave trade was uh, uh, abolished. Not to say that folks weren't continuing to do the slave trade after it was um, uh, illegal, but the the focus really then shifted to uh, forced birth because it was a way of being able to uh, guarantee a continued supply of of free of free labor. And you know, as you sort of look throughout the arc of of history, you know, once chattel slavery uh, ended. And you begin to have, uh, you know, you, you got the 13th Amendment, right? That has that exception in there uh, right, that allows, right? right? You, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, that, that exception that was uh, there, it also created sort of an impetus for criminalizing, uh, you know, Black bodies. And uh, when there would be children who would be born, uh, in states of where their parents were incarcerated, those children would be sold. So I think, you know, as we talk about this, it's important to kind of know the history around the economic exploitation side of this, but there's also a whole history around eugenics as well and, and seeking to um, uh, prevent uh, folks from having, um, uh, you know, children as well. And I think the story of Danny Hamer is one, you know, she, she talks about how, um, people would be sterilized without their knowledge. Right. And, uh, they, they talked about it, uh, uh, because it was so common. So understanding that people's ability to control their reproductive health has not been the same for everyone across uh, this country. I see I see this as a, a definite bulwark too for um, as many states across the country are passing laws that are removing uh, the rights for folks to make choices about their own reproductive rights and it becomes a very huge, huge issue. And, and, and so am I, am I correct in understanding that this bill in particular um, 
helps to to prevent like so if so for example if somebody from out of and I know there's there's the the in-state protection and all those kinds of things that 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 address Minnesota residents but if um I am from someplace else it, does the bill also protect me if I come into Minnesota because I can just imagine that we become a place where people need to go because there's these protections well you're you're absolutely right and and frankly that's what's happening right now because, mm. you know, since uh, Roe was uh, overturned, you know, just looking at Planned Parenthood here uh, locally and, and Minnesota, we've seen a 25% increase in folks coming from other states in order to access uh, abortion care. Uh, and in the last year since Roe was overturned, uh, have helped over 2,000 patients uh, get to uh, abortion appointments. And I think what is really important around this, because you you hit on something that I think is really important, because we now have this patchwork quilt of laws, you know, every state is can sort of combat this um, within their own way. There's also a lot of confusion. People don't know what's healthcare they can legally access within their state. And so it's also really interesting that the vast majority of people who have reached out for abortion navigation uh, services are in states where abortion is legal. But they don't even know that really? they can access that healthcare. Yes. Interesting. And so that's part of the, the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act is the protection of folks who may come into Minnesota uh, to seek abortion care, correct? Yeah. So what we wanted to ensure is that um, we wanted to ensure first that people had the ability to access the health care that they needed. And, um, and it's it's bigger than abortion care, right? Because For it's sure. really about ensuring that, uh, as you think about the whole spectrum of reproductive health care needs, that uh, that is there. And it's also really key because what we also know for the states that are, you know, enacting the most restrictive abortion bans, they have the worst health outcomes. They have higher maternal mortality mm. rates. Mm -hmm. They have higher infant mortality rates. They have more healthcare deserts where there, you know, people have to travel for long distances in order to get um, levels uh, levels of care. And so, recognizing that that's the it's the the new reality um, that that we have with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we wanted to ensure that. Um, uh, we could help eliminate some of the fear that people have about, you know, traveling to get access to the care that they need and to give some level of assurances to providers, right? Because, well, you know, just as, you know, patients are oftentimes confused, providers are also confused about what can I legally do? Mm -hmm. And you have situations mm -hmm. of where they have to consult with their attorneys while they're trying to determine what steps to take and situations where minutes can make the difference between saving someone's life. Mm -hmm. There's a, a piece of this. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, my brain is fascinated. So I'm, I'm all over the place now. Um, you know, one of the things that um, 
we when you when you look at the actual numbers, and so I'm glad you really kind of brought that up there because we've got these myths all over the country because of the way that talking points get bounded around and all these types of things, and we lose as that you know big national fight ensues, we lose all the details that are actually real for folks on the ground. And so you hit on a very important piece about the amount of care and the types of care that are actually in one protected and in two that actually happen at at many of these clinics. We we get this false notion that that this that and I'm glad you said it. You said this is, you know, off this is just about abortion. There's there's a whole lot of other things mm-hmm. that happen here um, as a result. And it's especially tied to outcomes when folks are engaged in their own healthcare space. I also, um, you know, and so I thank you for bringing those things forward. One of the other um, just horrible talking points that are bounding around that are misleading a whole lot of folks in our community, and that's uh, speaking for myself as an African-American, you know, I, uh, and as a pastor, we get questions. And as these questions come forward and folks are trying to make sense of things, they, they, come, they bring them to this collection of people who come from all these different backgrounds who might have some knowledge around it. And what has banded around are some talking points that, that this legalizes. Well, one, there's the whole thing about legalizing abortion. That's a, a, at issue in the mm-hmm. church space. But then we've got folks who are coming there and saying that this allows you to even get rid of or, or terminate the life of a child after they're born, which is just ridiculous. There was one person quoted in an article um, that is um, a political leader, quote, make no mistake, this extreme bill provides for taxpayer funded abortion on demand up until and even after birth. So that was the that was like almost exactly the language that one that this this parishioner brought forward to like, is this real? And so they must have been reading that article. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, gotta, I have to assume that as all these laws have passed, that there's a whole lot of like debunking that you're having to do in the process. It, what's that been like? Yeah, absolutely. There is. Um, I mean, I think right now where we find ourselves, it's a manufactured state of confusion. There is a concerted effort to create uh, confusion. And I, and I want to start with the most like outlandish claim that this law uh, allows homicide. It does not. <laughs> right. Like, it's just ridiculous to think, but. That is a crime. It remains a crime uh, before this law and it remains uh, a, a crime uh, at, you know, after, after this law. And so I, I think, you know, and, and just even in terms of, you know, thinking about uh, just practically uh, what uh, happens across our state in terms of access to uh, ab- uh, abortion um, care, um, you know, uh, prior to Roe v. Wade um, being overturned, you you tended to see most um, uh, abortion care happening with you know within that the realm of like the first trimester, right? Mm-hmm. And what we've actually seen with the overturning of Roe v. Wade is that the number of second trimester abortions have actually increased because now people are having to travel um, mm. for uh, uh, for their their care, and there are also so many challenges that come along with that. Because when we think about these abortion bans, we also have to be very clear. Abortion bans do not ban abortions for everyone. 
They only ban abortions for people who don't have the means or the opportunity mm-hmm. to travel mm-hmm. to another state to access the health care that, that they point. need, that they mm-hmm. need to access. So let's, I, so I think we need to be very clear um, about, about that. And I think it's also really important to understand that when you think about third trimester abortions, they are very rare. And, and when you're thinking about um, a, a third trimester uh, abortion, you are usually talking about really difficult situations where pregnancies were wanted and they are faced with the reality that uh, the, fe- the fetus is not compatible with life. And so, um, and you know, in terms of thinking about, because uh, um, I mean, even the statistics that the Minnesota Department of Health um, releases around, um, you know, uh, access to abortion uh, care and thinking about those uh, third term, um, uh, I think there were five rates uh, within the last report that came out in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, it's less than 1% of, of abortion care. And I think it's also really important to lift up as well that those are difficult decisions in light of the fact that these are wanted pregnancies where people were, um, uh, you know, anxiously ex- ex- expecting um, a new one. And there, there are many. I'm sorry, I'm jumping in just because I'm, I'm, I'm one who has has experienced the, the, you know, the loss of pregnancy with, with um, one of our children. And, 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 and I think it's really important to. I'm, I'm thank you for bringing that and reconnecting the human humans involved in the space because, you know, when you listen to some of this, this dumb information that's going out, I, I don't use that word lightly. Like it's just, it just. Is you know I like it I like it that orchestrated chaos or or confusion yes. orchestrated confusion is going out. Um, it has folks you know it 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 disregards the human experience of folks who are are making very difficult decisions like like you would you would think by some of these talking points out there that um, you know folks are are just being frivolous with their with with their actions and using this as you know like they would take a pill. Or like they would go and and you know do a joyride and have and 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 do something stupid. You know, it's not those. That's the language that gets it's put on here to make this stereotype. But that's not what's happening. These are real situations, real difficult situations, and and the narrative that you get about what's actually happening is is couldn't be further from the truth in many cases. Yeah, and I think it just it really comes down to the fact that there's so much stigma around abortion care, and abortion care is health care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, it's 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 healthcare, mm. and we are in the space of where not only are we having to sort of fight against uh, the the stigma, but there is this you know orchestrated confusion that is actually forcing people to. Have births. Uh, the case out of Mississippi, I think it was the 14 or 15 year old girl, uh, a young black girl, which I think to the point I was making about abortion bans, not banning abortion for everyone, is it, it's, it's sort of a perfect illustration of that. Uh, a young girl who uh, was horrifically uh, uh, raped, right? And then 
And then you're re-traumatized by a, a system that says that you shouldn't be able to get access uh, to this level of, of health care. And now her family, who were struggling financially, who couldn't, um, uh, you know, go somewhere else to, you know, get access to abortion care, they are now in the space of where she's giving birth, and they're navigating the trauma around around those things um, as well. And so, I mean, recognizing because you know you're right, there are people behind. Um, you know, these, um, uh, you know, these, these stories and there are so many sort of dots that I don't think people connect around what happens when you begin to control and force people to have children. I mean, we even have, we haven't even gotten into like the domestic violence, um, uh, statistics and Mm. what's, what, you know, what's happening there. And, I don't think people are talking enough about the fact that since Roe was overturned, the number of reports of people who have experienced domestic violence reporting that a male partner, and because this uh, was looking specifically at women and men, that a male partner has uh, attempted to control uh, their reproductive health and force them to have a pregnancy, that increased 100%. The number of reports mm. since um, Roe v. Wade was over overturned, and when you dig down further and begin to see that for individuals who've experienced domestic violence who terminate a pregnancy, their rate of abuse actually decreases. For someone who has experienced domestic violence and they're forced to um, carry a pregnancy to term, their rate of domestic violence increases after that child is born. And so like those are the types of conversations that I don't think that we're talking enough about and uh, understanding that the interconnections between um, reproductive health and how that plays out in situations of intimate partner violence and domestic violence. I think one thing when we talk about reproductive rights is um, people just think abortion, right? Um, people think Planned Parenthood. They think that what they do is they they perform abortions and that's it. And I think that a lot of people are so, uh, we're so taught that, that even in high school, that's what I thought was, you know, I never thought to go to Planned Parenthood to get birth control. I never thought to, uh, you know, um, seek other health care from Planned Parenthood because in my mind, all they did was abortions. And so I think that's something that, you know, we debated in, in high school, we had like a debate over, you know, is abortion, you know, um, good or bad or whatever. And, and it's all care. <laughs> right. And it's, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, we're so the, the manufactured state of confusion is so deep that, you know, even when I was in high school, I just, that I didn't even realize the Planned Parenthood did anything other than perform abortions. And, you know, and so that's, that was something that, that I definitely learned after I graduated from high school um, and learned more about what reproductive health really meant that was outside of 
of just abortions. It's everything about my reproductive system. And that, you know, maybe I should have a say. I mean, I am a, a child-free adult by choice, right? People say childless. I say child-free. Um, that's my decision. It is not my mom and dad's and grandma and grandpa's who remind me that I should have a child and that I'm young enough to have a child, blah, 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 blah. Um, it is it is my decision. So there was a second that there, there were two two parts of this legislation, and I didn't have a chance. Well, I remember uh, glancing at them, but there was a there was a portion in there that talked about trans gender and and could you talk? Could you explain that a little bit? So for those of us who are a little thick headed, we have a better understanding. Yeah. So the other bill was the trans refuge uh, uh, bill. And what that was really focused on was ensuring that um, Minnesota courts and, you know, officials would be prevented from, you know, complying with requests to, like, remove children from um, their, their parents or guardians, um, extraditions, um, arrests or subpoenas that would be related to gender-affirming care received in Minnesota. So what we have seen um, uh, recently, and what I describe as a race to the bottom, uh, is some really hateful legislation that has been popping up around uh, preventing access to uh, gender-affirming uh, care, um, and a lot of that has been focused on preventing access to gender-affirming care uh, for minors. And uh, bills were popping up that would say that if someone would travel to another state to receive that care, that uh, they should be extradited or criminalized or um, have child protection cases opened where children um, would be removed. And so what this bill does is ensure that if someone is coming to Minnesota to receive uh, gender-affirming care, which I may add is uh, evidence-based care, it's long-standing care that has been happening um, in community uh, for decades, and it's also uh, care that all the major medical associations support including uh, the pediatric um, associations. So if someone is coming to Minnesota to receive that care, they are going to be protected while they receive that care here in Minnesota. And um, we, we won't be complying with any of their uh, requests to extradite uh, people. And it really built upon some work that uh, Governor Walls had done as well because he had an executive order and this um, ensured that we went a step uh, further, codifying uh, into law uh, those uh, protections. And I think it's uh, really important, really important work. I think one thing you're talking about, um, Ruth, is the SHIELD law. I think they're calling it the SHIELD law um, that would protect patients and providers from legal action um, against, you know, from other states um, with a gender-affirming care. Iowa and South Dakota, I think, both prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. Um, so we're saying if somebody from Iowa, uh, a parent from Iowa brought their child to Minnesota, um, Iowa cannot force us to extradite them or charge them. What if when they go back to Iowa, 
what would happen? Yeah. So the reality is when you're in our, when you're in our state boundaries, you are, you are, you are protected. And I think that um, there are so many questions right now. And I think the question that you asked is really critical because it highlights the, um, the fear component, right, that people will have about uh, crossing the border to get care. Um, because it's like, what does it mean to cross into Minnesota to get care? And then what does it mean to, um, you know, cross back um, across um, state lines? And also, what will people know, right? So when you go mm -hmm. to get care, because in theory, no one should know about <laughs> what you're doing uh, and the privacy of the doctor's uh, uh, office. Mm -hmm. But there are so many sort of uh, bills that are underway you know, trying to sort of like pierce those veils to uh, to, to track. Um, not only if people are getting gender affirming care, but they're also trying to. There are bills around um, tracking uh, menstrual cycles, and you know, to try to uh, determine if uh, someone might have um, you know had an abortion. So, you know, from Minnesota's perspective, it's you know, all are welcome here. And your rights are protected. Um, your rights are protected while you're in our state. This this crosses definitely, um, you know, my purview again, just to put my clergy hat on, is is this this conversation, you know, crosses a few lines that folks are debating about within in, in our community spaces. And I think you did something very important in tying the outcomes of one previous ways of doing things. Um, which are erroneous. We may seem to we seem to think that somehow these are going to, you know, that that folks who who are who are for which these this shield law is in, is important and is and is necessary, who who want to end access to that different kind of care aren't looking down the pipeline. Um, we have the luxury of looking at a myopic view that meets one particular person's you know feeling. About about a religious belief, but but if if we're supposed to be in the you know looking at the whole person, right? Look down the line at the impacts of when you try to restrict this, right? You said earlier it only restricts access to some people, meaning people with means, um, and who who and, and and statistically looking at the numbers with when you disaggregate for race, looking at you know white folks have more access to be able to continue to move even outside of those laws. I mean, I think that's what that's getting at. Mm -hmm. um, um, I get the luxury of saying it because, you know, um, anyway, like, like <laughs> that, that's the, that's, that's the thing. We don't look down the line and look at what happens when folks try to take things in their own matter. If I can't afford it, that doesn't mean I'm not still going to try. And mm -hmm. so we can see horrible rates of what happens when folks want to take try to take it upon themselves to end pregnancy without the care, without the care of a doctor and all those kinds of things. You want to talk about trauma. It's the same reason when we look at what happens down the line when we um, don't allow you know all of the different things that go along with gender affirming care, the sociological, the psychological. It doesn't always mean uh, the one thing that everybody distills it down to, and that is is you know. Uh, Body bodily corrective surgeries or things like that. Like we go all the way to the extreme when the vast majority of this is, you know, psychological intervention. What does it mean to have a male body, but all of your endocrine system and everything else in there um, is 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 
is doing what would happen in in, in a, a quote unquote female identifying body or assigned you know body. So so all of these things start to come up, and now we can't talk about them because all I do is hit you with the super extreme thing or whatever's mm -hmm. uh, easiest to be able to align with a particular uh, worldview. And it's, there's this paranoia that doesn't actually look at the data and the outcomes. I think there's a lot of that that that's the manufactured state of confusion, right? Is um, the the quote from some folks who are against the the gender affirming care for minors is that it's quote radical medical treatments, and uh, like you were saying, they're thinking of the the surgeries. They're not thinking of the mental support um, that that these folks are are given. They're thinking, oh well, gender affirming care must mean you know physically turning a woman's body into a male body. Um, and that must be, you know, that's so extreme and radical and blah, blah, blah. And, and those are the talking points, right? Well, and I think it's so important because, uh, you know, just reiterating, gender affirming care is not new. No. It is something <laughs> that has been going on uh, for decades. What is new is the fact that there are groups of people who have coalesced around this issue uh, to politicize it um, in a way and have ba basically created uh, a really terrifying state of affairs uh, for LGBTQ plus uh, folks in terms of fears of, of, of violence, fears of family separation and, and all types of things. But I also, uh, I, I would also wager if you would ask some of these people, like, what is gender affirming care? They wouldn't be able to, to define mm -hmm. it or identify mm -hmm. it. And so thinking mm -hmm. about things like, um, uh, you know, from a mental health perspective or thinking about social affirmation, you know, supporting someone to share their pronouns is an example of gender affirming care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe there's like a gender affirming hairstyle that someone has. That's an example of gender, uh, you know, affirming, uh, gender affirming care. It's like clothing or their names, um, you know, related to like maybe what restrooms or facilities that they use. There, there is, uh, there's a, there's a whole sort of spectrum in terms of. Uh, things that represent uh, gender-affirming uh, uh, care. And there are also things that people probably don't think about as gender-affirming care, but uh, if, if if you're like a male that maybe needs one of those little blue pills, that's gender-affirming care. <laughs> <laughs> right? For those who may have missed a reference, that's <laughs> talking about <laughs> things that treat erectile dysfunction. I like to Correct. just go ahead and say the dang on thing. <laughs> yes. Correct. Um and I could I couldn't remember the name of the what is the name of the little hotel? I couldn't remember it. Like well, you know I what mean, I'm talking about. The brand ain't paying our bills here, so I don't feel the need to uh <laughs> That's no right. Shout out. That's right. <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and so just, um, you know, just in terms of understanding that people are oftentimes getting gender affirming care and don't even recognize it as gender affirming care as they are receiving. I mean, as well as, as just reproductive health care. I mean, the blue, the little blue pill is reproductive health care. 
you know, when you think about it. So, I mean, and, and there are just, I think there's so much stigma, I think, about both about, you know, gender affirming care and reproductive health care. I mean, I knew somebody who very young in life, she decided she she's not going to have kids. She knew this in high, in high school. And when she was about 25, 26, she decided to get her tubes tied. And the, she had a hard time finding a doctor who would who was willing to do it because the things she heard was, um, you might change your mind. Or she was single at the time. You might meet a man who wants to have children. You know, and those are things that she, she fought so hard. And I was like, why? Why do you have to fight so hard when it's your body and you're making this decision? And the theory is that in the future, <laughs> you might meet a man who has different values than you and want you to bear children for him. You better you know, come on, Lee. Come on, Lee. <laughs> these are things you we struggle. We struggle with this stuff all the time, right? I mean, like I've mentioned earlier in this show and before, I, I get a lot of pressure to have children. It's very un, unusual for uh, a Hmong woman to um, choose to, to not have children, right? And so it's, it's very strange for people. A lot of people, when they see me, and they don't know me and they they see how old I am and I don't have kids. They assume it's because I, I, I cannot have children, you know, and, and that's that's also like a very hurtful thing for women, because I know a lot of women who have lost children, uh, who have angel babies. Um, and so, you know, there's just this whole societal expectation of us that's, as women. It's all about control. Yeah. You know, you, you 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 don't have children. There must be something wrong with you. It must not be a decision that that you have made for your future. But if it is, you obviously don't know what's best for you. I get a lot of the "you'll change your mind," "you'll change your mind." You're still young enough. You'll change your mind. And I think that's the, and that's the narrative that needs to change. Uh, to to be sitting across the the room or across the state from someone and to feel like I know better than you know what you need is mm -hmm. uh you know just the the highest sort of level of hypocrisy i think in so um many ways um because oftentimes the same folks who want to control other people's reproductive health don't want anyone to control anything that is related to them or touches them mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and in any way, um, and so that you know, as as we have these conversations, you know, my dad was a wise man. He once told me, um, uh, "Follow the money." So follow the money, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also you know, understanding the at the crux of all of this, it's all about control. Yeah, I you know, there's really no other way. Of looking at, I mean, from my perspective as, as as a woman, that's that's what all I see, right? Is this need to control what we what we're doing with our bodies, um, telling us we don't know, they know better, we may regret our decisions, so let them decide for us, you know, and those sorts of things of just trying to make us. I've been second class citizens, right? Not being able to feel like you can understand your body enough because it becomes illegal for you to do those sorts of things. And so, you know, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, I think um, a lot of women um, 
were upset, including myself. Um, and so I, I did see that this became, you know, one of the top priorities this session. And, and that made me really proud um, as a Minnesotan and as, and as a woman for the work that you guys um, have all been doing for this. Because I've known a lot of yeah. women who have had to get abortions, who, um, you know, for financial reasons, for um, reasons of um, the, the person that they're currently in a relationship with. Um, there were women I knew who used condoms and was on birth control and still got pregnant, right? They did everything right and they still got pregnant. But then the, the, the thing I hear from a lot of folks who are anti-abortion was always like, oh, so you're just going to go around, you're going to sleep around. And then every time you get knocked up, you're just going to walk into Planned Parenthood and get an abortion. Like it's going to be that easy, you know? And, and those- yeah. <laughs> well, well, when the data also, is so opposite, I mean, let's be clear: right. the data is the exact opposite of that that erroneous belief. Just want to put that out there. And, and I also, and you know, and I also just want to lift up that, um, you know, you know, thinking back to the Dobbs decision when it leaked um, um, some weeks prior to Roe being overturned. As I was reading through that decision, there were a number of things that struck me. I was like, this is about so much more than access to abortion because it's like, hey, we're coming for contraception. Mm -hmm. we, we don't believe that you should be able to have, you know, access uh, to contraception, uh, marriage equality. Uh, I, I was seeing all of these folks talking about states' rights when it came to things like Brown versus Board of Education. Like, and there were these conversations about we're going to go back 50 years, right? And it's like, well, actually, they're trying to take us back like 250 years if mm. you actually read deeply into that, um, if you read that uh, carefully. But I also just want to um, just like clarify, there was this outpouring after Roe was overturned. But for many communities, Roe wasn't that great for them. Because as you think about particularly Black and Brown um, communities, there were people who were struggling to get access to the reproductive health services that they needed prior to Roe being mm -hmm. overturned, right? And also, um, you know, we've talked before about the Black um, maternal mortality crisis um, in this state mm -hmm. and within this nation um, as well. And when you think about the fact that we live in a nation where Black women are three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause, and 85% of those deaths are preventable. 85% of those deaths wow. are preventable. We live in a state where uh, Black infants are twice as likely to die when compared with um, white infants. And the majority of those deaths are preventable. Mm. And mm. so mm. I talked about the manufactured confusion that has been sown since Roe, uh, with Roe v. Wade and around gender-affirming care. But we also have a completely manufactured Black maternal health crisis, a completely manufactured Indigenous maternal health crisis um, as well, because these deaths are preventable. And... They have actually been getting worse and increasing since the 90s. We are going the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And more people are dying. Yeah. So, Ruth, 
what what has you know because we've had previous discussions on here in terms of uh people of color in Minnesota and the incredible health disparities mm-hmm. which is what you're what you're talking about and I'm wondering if you could break down a little bit I mean you know the very things that you were pointing out is that all just related to to lack of access to health care so Here's the thing, and I think it's really important because when we talk about the Black maternal health crisis, I think the initial uh, and the Indigenous maternal health crisis, I think the initial thought process that people have is what are Black women or Black people who are pregnant or Indigenous folks that are pregnant, what are they doing wrong, right? Like, Mm. what's wrong with them when the reality is you can control for all the factors, uh, you can control for age, general overall health, uh, nutrition. You can control for education. You can control for uh, socioeconomic status, how much money uh, people make, mental health status, SUD status, and uh, family status. And we are still more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause when you control for all of those factors. And so I think it's important that people realize it's not about race. It is about racism. Racism is what is killing uh, communities. There are too many stories of people who have had providers disregard what they say Mm -hmm. when they're asking Mm -hmm. for help and when they Mm -hmm. are crying out um, and and pain. Uh, Part of this is if we could get uh, more providers to listen to people, uh, that it's really, uh, that's going to be really uh, critical. And I also think that it's really uh, important that we recognize the fact that unless we are holding systems accountable for what is happening, we're just continuing to perpetuate this. And there are uh, great um, sort of tools out there for hospitals and freestanding birth clinics. I would love for some of these hospitals and, and birth clinics to implement uh, the, the validated tools that like uh, Dr. Karen Scott has, for example, that measures obstetric racism. Shouldn't our hospitals want to know that information in terms of how they how they are doing? Because also part of this, it's like you can't um, fix something that you don't acknowledge. And you also can't mm-hmm. fix something that you are not keeping track of and 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 accounting and, and accounting for. And so recognizing that um, while our 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 hospitals and and um, freestanding birth beds, they all play a role in this, this is really a community um issue that um, we all need to be, you know, um, talking more about because when Roe was overturned, people took to the street. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Prior to Roe being overturned, we didn't see folks taken to the streets to say, "Hey, what are we going to do to uh, disrupt the fact that 85 percent of these deaths of our black and brown relatives can be prevented?" And that we got right. we got grapple with that stuff because action and inaction all say something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fear, uh, you know. It- I, I kind of always bring it back to this too, like education and just the lack of the of education that we receive about the women's bodies, 
right? And just how they work. <laughs> I mean, there are people, men who have said, you know, why put pads in uh, restrooms? And, you know, at college, you know, when oh, I was I in college, there, there was a basket. There was always a basket sitting in there for us. And it, you know, it made certain, it made some men angry, like hold it or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. Right. Um, so they don't make people carry around their own toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> hold it. Just hold it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, there's just this lack of understanding. I think um, not obviously not of all men, but um, even women who don't even understand. Right. Like I think some um Culturally, historically, you know, a lot of people thought that, um, and maybe in some cultures, uh, that when you had your period, it was releasing um, evil from you, right? I mean, there are different theories about from different cultures about what what it all means, and I think there's just this uh, overall lack of education about our bodies, and so maybe that's what makes white guys and ties think they can try to control them. I don't, I, you know, that because they have the lack of education or knowledge of how we function. Um, well, and, and I, and I think that that lack of education also impacts, um, people in their own sort of realities as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember as a, a teenager living with intense and debilitating pain, from uh, the, the moment that my cycle began. And I didn't know why. You know, went to all kinds of doctors, ended up in emergency rooms, had my pain disregarded um, uh, for years. And it wasn't until I was um, in college that I discovered uh, Planned Parenthood. And I went there and I didn't even know what I was going there for. I just knew like, hey, I'm having these pains. I've been having them for years now, and I don't know what to do. And that was the first time that I shared uh, the debilitating pain that I had been experiencing, but I actually had someone say, like, like take me seriously, mm -hmm. believe that I was in pain, and put me on a pathway to like live without that debilitating pain for the first time after having lived with it. Uh, for years, um, you know, between like 13 and 19, lived with debilitating pain, excruciating pain, and and didn't know why. All right, guys, I'm, we're going to talk about periods for a minute. So <laughs> we don't need a disclaimer. Yo, yo, let's let's change the game on this one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had a sister who uh, used to throw up every time she got her cycle. And we didn't realize that there were ways you know, to help control that pain. I mean, she literally, she couldn't leave the house. Yep. She'd just be puking. You know, we, and, and even if we did, we were too afraid to ask, you know, I mean, when my first cycle came, I didn't know what it was. Nobody told me my, I have, how many older sisters do I have? I, I have four older sisters and my mom, and we never talked about it. It was shameful. We weren't supposed to let the men in the house know when we were on our cycles. Like we couldn't, you know, it was, if I left um, a wrapper out, my mom would just, you know, after I came home <laughs> from school, she would just yell at me. Oh, don't you see how embarrassing it is? Your dad knows that one of us is on our period now, you know, and stuff like that. And, and I was shamed, you know? And so seeking, finding birth control or anything to help control 
your flow <laughs> or anything like that, it, it it seemed shameful. And then, you know, having feeling like, okay, if I ask, if I go to a clinic and I ask for something, it's going to show up on my, uh, mm. you know, my mom and dad's insurance. And the mom's yeah. going to come asking me for it. You know, why are you doing this? You know, you, you shouldn't be doing this to your hormones. And that just changed, you know, that affected the way that we saw our bodies as young women. Yeah. You know, having not feeling empowered to understand a what was happening to us, but b how we can control the pain um, that we are experiencing, and not just the pain, just being uncomfortable. Like I just don't like it, right? Like what can I do about it? There are things you can do about it that I never yeah. knew existed. It's and exactly. At some point, we got to have Dr. Verna Thornton. She's an OBGYN here in the Northland area. And one of the things that she's working with us, she's a, a member of, 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 of our congregation. And one of the things that she's really, she talks about often whenever we get into these conversations is how much of this stigma prevents her from, one, getting the information that she needs, and two, getting to see people early enough to, because you, you said this earlier and you keep repeating it, so many of the things that cause this mortality uh, of the mother and of the child are, are preventable, and and I can just I can just hear in the back of in, in in another one of these sessions that we've had where she's been trying to get folks to normalize just go check it out, but there is a barrier sometimes between you know because on one hand somebody you know somebody who sees it especially on the on the later end she does really really you know intense cases, and by the time she sees it so many things are too late that could have been in place. And so she's a definite advocate of just saying, hey, go get it checked out early. She'd be one of those folks that you encountered. But there's so many people who um, who will recount their horror stories to me in, in, in community um, about how they kept not being believed. I mean, I, I, I knew the data on this, mm -hmm. on this when you brought it forward, but I'm, I'm really getting a chance from this vantage point of seeing the real lived experience of being denied, not believed, not believed, and having to make a case, and you have to be in so much pain before you actually get uh, the attention that's needed there. I mean, that's a huge issue. Well, I remember being 14 years old, and I won't say the name of the hospital because it's still around, but I was 14 years old, and I was in the emergency room because the pain, I was doubled over in pain, and my dad took me to the hospital. And I'm in agony. My dad's sitting on the chair. The emergency room doctor comes in and he says, if you want us to help you, you need to tell us the truth. Because you're not telling us the truth. <laughs> and so he said, I'm going to have oh your, gosh. he's like, I'm going to have your dad leave the room so that you can tell us the truth. My dad leaves the room and he goes, um, you need to uh, be honest. You're pregnant and you're having a miscarriage right now. That's what's happening. And you need to tell us. And I was like, that is not what is happening because unless it's immaculate conception. <laughs> I, was, I was raised in a very religious household. So unless it's immaculate conception, that is not what is going on here. And in fact, I was, you know, they gave me a pregnancy test. And then once th th they were able to show that, no, this is just not pregnant. This is, this is like intense period pain. It wasn't like he then came back to say, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you. It was mm -hmm. just sort of like, 
Well, that's just something you're going to have to live with, right? So so first you're like a liar. <laughs> you know, I, I don't believe you. You're not being honest. You've done something and you're not telling us about it. And that's why we can't help you. And then once his theory was disproven, it's just like, well, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. Welcome to being a woman. Deal with the pain, you know? I mean, I've been told that so many times from people where I'm just like, I mean, even like men I was wow. in relationships with when I was younger and I would complain about period pains, they would just be like, well, you know, that's what happens when you're a woman. I'm like, or uh, go take a Tylenol. It happens so often. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Growing up, like the things that we were taught. And, and by other guys and stuff like that, I have been one to say and perpetuate things like that. Or, mm -hmm. or uh oh, here we go. And all these things mm. that are negative contributors uh, or, 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 or that are negative contributors and they stigmatize in so many ways. Um, it's it's <laughs> we got to get to a point where, where I don't have to get have a daughter myself to go, oh, snap, because mm -hmm. all these things that then she then encounters and experiences, I'm like, oh, I used to think like that. I used to perpetuate that. I used to do these. And so, and, and, and again, it's this down the river ripple effect, right? When you connect all these little tributaries of stigmas and aggressions over time, you start really getting to these indicators for 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 suicide, for these indicators for uh, other conditions that decrease people's uh, uh, quality of health, which also have medical uh, um, uh, uh, you know connection to it, and so we don't again we, just like going back to that that we don't we take the human equation out of it, we don't see all these little ripple effects that leave an actual picture down the line because we've created a false picture that fits whatever our own view of the world is. Data be damned. <laughs> so the other day was my sister-in-law's birthday. And a bunch of us girls went out um, and had dinner together. And somehow conversation came to like breastfeeding. And we were talking about, you know, what she was doing with her frozen um, breast milk that she had for her baby. And, you know, discharge and all that kind of stuff. And I was at home telling my husband about this. You know, he said, somehow whenever you girls get together, it comes down to bodily fluids. Um, your conversations. So thank you, Don and Anthony, for sitting through kind of a bodily fluid conversation. No, hold on. We got a myth bust here because that's some hypocritical stuff. Because I'm sorry. A whole lot of conversations when guys get together boil down to bodily fluids too. That like like they they huffing if they're trying to make it seem like they don't. That's some that's some hypocrite stuff. I'll let him know that. So next time you and my husband are talking in private, I'll assume, okay. Sounds good. Yep. And I'm uh, going to make sure it does just because of this conversation. <laughs> Ruth, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, I feel like we really haven't gotten started. And I feel like I, I probably jumped around a lot because I was just like thinking of all these things that have happened to me in my youth, the things I didn't know, the things I learned, the things I'm learning now and continue to learn about um, reproductive health and services that um, you know, our trans and LGBTQ community needs. Um, and so thank you for joining us to help walk through some of those things that have happened um, this past session. Yes, thank you for having me. It's always uh, a good time. So I appreciate all that you all are doing. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. 
Anthony Galloway, partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Spanish Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. And our special guest, Ruth Richardson. Thanks for having me. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.